As I said at the beginning of the service, we're entering into the season of Advent. We're going to focus on these traditional themes of peace and hope and love and joy. I, for one, believe that we really need this, like really need it. With all that is happening in the world, from racial tensions to political tensions to economic uncertainties, and oh yeah, let's just layer a global pandemic on top of everything. And in the midst of this, there's a lot of noise. And if you've noticed, quite a bit of anger as well. And nowadays, everyone has a platform to get on their soapbox and express their outrage at real and sometimes perceived injustices and oppression. There's a certain heaviness that I think we all feel. I mean, what a crazy year 2020 has been. 2,000 years ago, Israel was longing for the Messiah. For 400 years, God had been silent. And Israel was under Roman occupation. And they they wondered if the Messiah would ever come and bring an end to their captivity and oppression. To free them as captives. Oh, how they longed for good news. And so when the angel appeared to the shepherds and announced, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you. Who is the Messiah, the Lord? I mean, could this really be true? Could this finally be happening, they must have wondered? And then the angel was joined by a a choir of angels praising God and declaring glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Peace on earth. Don't those words sound wonderful and hopeful? This is what I want us to think about for a little bit this morning. Some time ago, I was already starting to think about this theme of peace, and I don't really know why or how or when it even happened, but it just was there, and it was, go to the story of Jesus calming uh, the storm. And then, if you're following along in the daily reading plan that we're encouraging uh, everyone to participate in, by, it's a reading plan by a pastor named Robert Murray McShane. Um, this week now, we started, or even last week, we started reading through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, I think it was Tuesday of this week, the reading was Luke chapter 8. And so that was sort of just final confirmation that I needed. It was like, okay, Lord, I, I get it. Because again, just in reading it, it just spoke to me about this subject of peace. And then later, as I talked with the children's ministry team, I discovered that in their spotlight, they were actually going to teach the kids that story as well about Jesus calming the storm. And so while it may seem like that was coordinated, it was only coordinated as far as the theme, but not that we would be looking at exactly the same uh, accounts in the life of Jesus. And so I take all of those little confirmations to mean uh, that, that I believe that this is a timely word for us, an important word for us. And so I want to just quickly make three observations about this passage and then draw some applications from that. But first, 
let me just remind you of the big picture again. Now, this may be familiar to you, uh, but let's not let the familiarity of it cause us to actually miss the message. I know we already saw this depicted in the kids' story, um, but let's just go back and look at what's happening there. So first of all, Jesus decides that it's time to move on, and they're going to go around to the other side of the lake, and so they're going to sail across the Sea of Galilee. And so for the fishermen among them, this was familiar territory, no, no big deal at all. And so they get off, they get, they get into their boat, and off they go. And as they're sailing, Jesus finds that he's tired, and he's comfortable enough that he falls asleep. And while he is sleeping and while they're sailing in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, suddenly, out of nowhere, a huge storm blows in. And the waves are raging and the boat is taking on water. And it is, in fact, a very dangerous situation. And even the experienced fishermen among them are afraid and they're freaking out. They think they're going to die. I mean, death by drowning Just the thought of that kind of freaks me out. And so the disciples do what I think we would all do in that situation is, of course, they turn to Jesus, they wake him up, and they make sure that he knows that their lives are at risk. And so they say to him, we're going to die. We're going to drown. And so Jesus gets up. And, and the word there is used, he rebukes the wind. It's almost like he, he reprimanded it. He, he told it off. And Luke doesn't record exactly what he says, but Mark's account does. And in Mark chapter 4 and verse 39, he just says, quiet, be still, or silence, be still. And some translations translate that word, peace be still. And at just the utterance of those words, we know what happens. The Bible says that the storm subsided and all was calm. I mean, just quickly process this with me. Calm sea, set out to sea, raging seas, waves rocking the boat, and now calm, peace. And Jesus looks at his disciples and asks, Where is your faith? Because he knew that they had misplaced it. The words used there are, they were terrified and amazed. And their only response in this moment of just sheer terror, yet total awe and amazement, is who is this? And that is one of the most important questions that we need to ask when it comes to Christmas. Who is Jesus? But let me just make those observations that I think will be helpful. And there's probably lots here you can add to this list, but I just want to give you three. Number one, I want us to notice that Jesus himself gets exhausted. I mean... Jesus and his disciples, they're constantly involved in ministry. And there were the crowds and the demands and the expectations and the travel involved. And Luke chapter 8 verse 1 provides some insight into just how extensive Jesus' ministry was. It says there, he was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. And he's healing people in the process. 
and he's engaging with people. And that in itself is exhausting. And the emotional and physical exhaustion meant that not only could he fall asleep in a boat, he was able to sleep right through the storm. Think about it. This boat is being violently tossed around by the waves by a storm severe enough to terrify even experienced fishermen, and Jesus is fast asleep. They have to actually wake him to get his attention. And for me, this simply underscores the truth that Jesus, while being fully God, was also fully human. He had a body like ours. He got thirsty. He got hungry. And he would get tired. And because of this, we know that he can relate to us and understand our needs and our pain and our emotions and even our sheer exhaustion. I'll come back to that in a moment. Another observation I want to make is that Jesus has authority. He has authority. In verse 24, he commands the wind and the waves to be still and they obey him, right? Peace, be still, and the waves are stilled. And in verse 25, the disciples in their their fear and their amazement, they wonder, who is this? And then they add, he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Now, if you keep reading in Luke's gospel, you'll find uh, immediately after this account, there's recorded many more miracles. Right after this, Jesus heals a a demon-possessed man, and then he raises a, a dead girl to life. Then Jesus heals a sick woman, and ultimately, he then feeds the 5,000. And Luke, in writing this account of the life of Jesus, he wants to make it very clear that Jesus has authority. He's making a very clear statement that the one who has power and authority and control, and he has that power and authority and control over nature, over the spirit world, over even death itself, is not only the promised Messiah, But then, ultimately, through the transfiguration in chapter 9, is confirmed to be the Son of God. We sang about the risen Son of God this morning. And as the Son of God, Jesus has all authority. And because Jesus was fully human and was exhausted, and because he was fully God, and has authority. Thirdly, Jesus can be trusted. Think about how the disciples responded to the authority of Jesus. Luke tells us that the response of the disciples was fear and amazement, and the disciples recognized the significance of what had just happened, and they're in total awe. They're completely undone by this, and in this sense, the fear was actually awe. It's it's how you would expect people to respond in the presence of God. And throughout Luke's gospel, this is how people responded to the presence and the power of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 5, some men, they were trying to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And they couldn't get past the crowds, and so they dropped him through the roof. And Jesus then forgives the man, and he heals him. And in verse 26, Luke records the reaction of the people who witnessed this. Then everyone was astounded 
And they were giving glory to God. And they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. And then we see the same reaction in in chapter 7 when the widow's dead son was raised to life. In verse 16, then fear came over everyone and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And so this fear, this awe and amazement is, is the result of witnessing and experiencing the power of God in action. And when Jesus then asks his disciples, where is your faith? He isn't scolding them as if they're surprised in some ways that bad things would actually happen to good people. Friends, car accidents kill people. Storms happen. Cancer is indiscriminate. But Jesus is questioning where their faith and their trust is placed. And like them, our faith should be in Jesus and Jesus alone, not in what he can do for us. As D.A. Carson writes, he says, the faith the disciples should have had is faith in Jesus, not simply faith that he could or would help them out, but rich faith in him precisely because If he is the promised Messiah sent by Almighty God, it is ridiculous to think that an accidental storm could kill him and those with him. Their fears betray less than a firm, faithful grasp of who Jesus is. Their fears betray less than a firm, faithful grasp of who Jesus is. In other words, followers of Jesus demonstrate their faith when they recognize Jesus for who he is and what he is capable of doing and then choose to trust him in any and every situation, even in a pandemic. And so what does this all have to do with peace and Christmas and Advent? Well, lots. Think with me just for a little bit more on this theme of peace with God and also the peace of God. You see, this baby whom we celebrate at Christmas, this baby born in a manger, came to bring peace to the world, to bring peace to us. And this baby, both fully human and fully God, made a way for us to have peace with God so that we could know the peace of God. And Jesus made this possible by reconciling the world to himself through his death. As the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians, chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, and through him, Jesus, he's talking about, and through Jesus to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by, listen to this, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so it's through Jesus that we ultimately have peace with God. And in writing to the Romans, Paul put it this way, Romans chapter 5 verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it is through Jesus that we're ultimately brought into a relationship with God. 
We're made right with God. At one point, the Bible says that we're enemies of God, but then with faith in Jesus, we're made right with God. We're reconciled. And now we're no longer enemies, but friends. And then once that happens, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and begins the work of transforming our hearts and our minds. And in Romans 8, 6, again Paul writes, now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. And we know that the Spirit does His work in us and through us, changing us, forming us, shaping us, and ultimately developing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace. This isn't something that we make up ourselves. This isn't a a mindfulness exercise. This isn't a yoga pose. This, This is just knowing Jesus and through Jesus having peace with God and then the Holy Spirit transforming us so that we have love, joy, peace and You you might know the rest of Galatians 5.22, right? Patience and kindness, goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So not only do we have peace with God and the peace of God and a growing experience of peace in our lives, Jesus also provides peace in times of uncertainty. Almost like a, a peace on demand. Don't we need that now? In this season, when tensions are high and when fear and worry and anxiety and stress and conflict threaten to overwhelm, where is the peace the angels sang about in all that we're experiencing in the world today? And here's the promise from Jesus himself as recorded in John 16, verse 33. Listen to these words carefully. I have told you these things, he says, so that in me you may have peace. That's where peace is found in a relationship with Jesus. And then he adds, look at, you will have suffering in this world. It's almost like we shouldn't be surprised by storms in our lives. And what does he say? He says, be courageous. Why can we be courageous when when all around us there's chaos and tension and things feel like they're out of control? He says, well, you can be courageous because I've given you my peace. I've conquered the world. But did you catch that? That we will have suffering in this world. It's unavoidable. But it's suffering and peace that in the midst of a trying, challenging time, we still have this deep-rooted sense that all is well in the world. All is well in my life. And I wonder if it's more important to experience this in reality than to simply just know it in our heads. To actually experience a calming of a storm for us to really get it. 
That somehow in the crush of all of the emotions of of a major life event, a death, an illness, a pandemic, we can experience this deep, settled peace that all is in fact well. Even if the waves and the wind continue to rage. Well, I don't know about you, I I suspect that most people probably have one of those life experiences that they can always go back to and say, I know exactly what you're talking about, Norm. When we went through this season in our lives, there was this deep peace that was unexplainable. And, And for Tina and myself, this event happened in 1998, 22 years ago this December. Our eldest son, Lucas, was only five months old. And some of you know this story or bits and pieces of the story because I do go back and talk about this because there were so many life lessons, so many faith lessons that God taught us in that season. And some of you, as I said, know this story, but it was a week before Christmas. In fact, December 18th, it was a Friday night. I remember it so well. We were actually hosting a Christmas party at our house. And we had friends and people from church over and all of the, as you know, all of the preparations and the excitement of doing that. And it's a lot of work, but you know it's going to be a lot of fun and people are enjoying themselves. And Tina's off in the corner talking to some friends and she says, you know, I feel really weird. I have this tingling sensation in my fingers. Well, the next morning she wakes up and she says, Norm, like, this has really gotten bad. I can feel it in my toes. Like, it's just like pins and needles everywhere. And I... I don't know what it is, and I'm scared, and I'm going to go to ER, and I'm going to stay home with our five-month-old son. And so Tina, that Saturday morning, goes to ER. And she explains the situation, and the doctor assesses her and says, you know what, you're, it's anxiety. You're, you're stressed about the holidays and all the things. Do you have anything special planned? And they're like, yeah, we're driving to go, you know, we're going to fly to Alberta to see my in-laws. And, you know, that can be stressful as enough, right? And, and, and so she comes home, okay, well then, Let's cancel the trip. We don't need to add a stressful event onto our lives. By Saturday night, it had gotten more intense, and you could just tell that it was just weighing heavy on Tina. So she goes back to ER. This time, I believe I went with her. We got a babysitter in, and again, they just said the same thing. It's just like, it's too early to to know the the results of just giving up an event that was causing you stress. Just go home and relax. This will pass. Sunday, I go off to church and preach, and I come home, and, and, and Tina's just in tears because now she can hardly move some of her fingers beyond the, the tingling. And so we go again to emergency, the third visit. Same story. Just go home, relax. By Monday morning, she was in pain, could barely move herself, and I had to usher her into the hospital. This is now the fourth doctor we're seeing in a matter of three days. And he looks at it, and he has a hunch. And he was an older doctor, and only once in his lifetime had he ever dealt with this particular illness before. And so he played a hunch. He made some appointments in Ottawa. We went in and had some testing, and ultimately she was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS. And GBS, if you don't know anything about it, it's a rare disorder in which your body's immune system attacks your nerves, and the result is weakness and tingling in your extremities. Those are usually the first symptoms, and then these sensations can, can, can spread very quickly, eventually paralyzing your whole body. 
And we spent two days then and two nights in an Ottawa hospital waiting for what this was going to take, what was going to be diagnosed, and this was the diagnosis, and what they're going to do about it. And I remember them, this is, think about this, this is kind of before smartphones, so you don't just look it up on your internet, on your, on your smartphone and say, you know, what is Guillain-Barre syndrome? And they hand me this paper, and I'm reading through it, and, and, and it, was, it was just flat-out frightening. In fact, they say that it takes, once you experience Guillain-Barre, it might be six months before you even start to walk again. And all I could just see was this steady decline with no end in sight and all of the uncertainty of what the days lie ahead. By this time, uh, Christmas Eve was off my radar. Our elders stepped in. They took over the service. But I remember driving home from Ottawa on Christmas Eve in 1998, and it was The snow was just like this incredibly peaceful snow that was following, covering everything. And I didn't have to go to the church because the service was actually happening as I was driving in. But my heart wanted to be there, so I thought, I'm just going to drive by there. It wasn't the way I needed to go, but I drove by the church, and it was almost the scene out of like a Thomas Kincaid picture, or, you know, this incredibly peaceful scene. And I did, in the midst of all of the uncertainty and the fear and the anxiety of what was going to happen, in that moment, I can't describe it, but it was this incredible deep sense of peace that overcame me. That it was going to be okay, Nor. I got this. It was somewhere in there that my brother-in-law sent me a cassette tape. And it was a song on it by an artist named Scott Kerpain called Sometimes He Calms the Storm. And he said, all who sail the sea of faith find out before too long how quickly blue skies can grow dark and gentle words, winds, sorry, gentle winds grow strong. Suddenly fear is like white water pounding on the soul. Still we sail on knowing that our Lord is in control. Sometimes he calms the storm with a whispered peace be still. He can settle any sea but it doesn't mean he will. Sometimes he holds us close and lets the wind and waves go wild. Sometimes he calms the storm and other times he calms his child. Friends, that's a peace that you can't describe. Because the next morning, Christmas Day, I returned to the hospital. And as soon as I arrived... They were just in the process of moving Tina out of what was just an observation unit and into intensive care because she was no longer able to breathe on her own and needed to be put on a ventilator. And for the next week, spent many hours in the waiting room, many days just in her room taking care of what I could and just seeing her lifeless body being sustained by equipment. And still felt peace in the midst of tears. Friends, COVID-19 and its impact, I believe, is the storm of our lives. It's like we are all in this boat and we're being tossed about by the raging waters. And it even maybe seems like God is asleep. And all some of us can think of is is we're going to die. (laughs) Now, of course we aren't. But more than ever, 
We need to put our trust in God and to know that He is in control, that He has the power and the authority to stop COVID dead in its tracks. But also to be able to say with confidence, sometimes He calms the storm and other times He calms His child. Sometimes it's peace be still. And sometimes it's Peace, my child. There's a, a saying that's very familiar. It's not very create, uh, not unique to me or my creativity, but you probably know this. Just know God, no peace. Know God, no peace. Friends, that's the message of hope and peace that we can share with the people around us that are truly freaking out by all of this. Maybe it's a message we need to hear ourselves. To have confidence that we can know and experience the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. Let me draw this to a close by just sharing quickly five applications. One, come to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus personally, listen, this is where it starts. Come to know the Prince of Peace. Come to know the one that the angels sang about because that's the starting point. That's the foundation. By coming to know Jesus, you will first and foremost have peace with God. You'll be made right with Him. And you'll know Him as your Heavenly Father that He cares for you. He wants the best for you. And he'll walk with you in the storms of our lives. Not always sheltering us from those storms, but being Emmanuel, God with us in the presence of those storms. And you come to Jesus simply through prayer by admitting that you are a sinner, that you need forgiveness of your sins, believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died to take away your sins and to say, you know what, I'm going to choose to follow you. I don't have it all figured out. I don't know all the answers. I don't know where I'm going. But in my heart, there's so much stress and anxiety that I just don't even know what to do with it. And in my desperation, I'm going to call out to Jesus. That's the invitation, to come to Jesus. And if you've come to Jesus, then secondly, just trust Him. Trust God. I mean, this is knowing God and who he, who he is and what He can do. It's the knowing the truth about God. And as I've said here already a few times, faith doesn't somehow insulate us from storms. I mean, the disciples, they followed Jesus. They committed to following Him, and yet they found themselves in the midst of a very scary storm. But following Jesus doesn't always mean smooth sailing. And COVID-19 has been incredibly disorientating and disruptive and, uh, on, on everyone. And, and suddenly, everything that we've known as normal is no longer normal. And if we put our trust in people or places or things, and we find, find them ultimately unreliable, we're going to be shaken. And Jesus says to us, where is your faith? 
I think that's one of the things that is so concerning about this pandemic because it's so easy to misplace our trust, to put our hope, you know, in, 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 in the next thing. You know, next week is going to be better. Next month will be better. By February, there's going to be a vaccine. And we'll finally be able to go to vacation, on vacation on March break. And then those dates come and go and things aren't any better, maybe even worse. Friends, Please take some time to read and reflect on Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Read it. Let me show you just the last two verses, 33 and 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's it. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself Each day has enough trouble of its own. It's kind of depressing on one hand, but it's a true statement. And we can get so distracted if all we're thinking about is the next thing. So let's trust God. Thirdly, give yourself permission to rest. If Jesus had to rest because he was exhausted, if Jesus could sleep on a boat in a raging sea, then it's okay for you and I to take a nap when we need it. Because this is exhausting. And it's okay to admit that. And then do something about it. You know, in Hebrew, they have a great word. It's shalom, which is translated peace, but, but it has a, a better, broader meaning. It's about wholeness and completeness. And it understands that, that as human beings, we're spiritual, but there's a physical side to us and a relational side to us and a mental and emotional side to us. And when, when, when a Hebrew person greets you with shalom, it's like peace to you that all is well, all is complete. And so we need to take care of ourselves spiritually and physically and emotionally. And so we need to do those things that will be life-giving to us. And sometimes it's sleep and sometimes it's exercise. Sometimes it's just eating well. Fourthly, spend time with God. There's no shortcuts here, friends. We need to step this up. We have probably, most of us have been given some extra time. Some of you who no longer commute. Some of you who, who maybe have reduced work hour, whatever it is, I want to encourage us, think about how we use our time, but make sure that we're going to God consistently and regularly. That's why we've offered this reading plan to keep us focused on something and to do it in community. Friends, for me, I have had to limit my news coverage. I used to faithfully record and then watch the evening news. And I don't do it anymore at all. And about every two weeks, I go in and I'll, and I'll watch one, the, the most recent broadcast and, and then just go, well, now I know why I don't watch it and I'll just delete all of them. I've also pulled back from social media. Why? Because all of these things can be distracting. They can be part of the noise that comes to us. And I want to just challenge you. In order to keep our eyes on Jesus, what is it that we need to give up? And maybe we experience a deep peace in the middle of all of that. And lastly, I want to just say this, connect with others. I mean, this is a shared experience for us. 
But we all have different perspectives. I've, I know people who are retired that say, you know what, some ways our lives haven't changed that much. We don't go out as often. And then it moves all the way over to, you know, people that are on the front lines and educators and, 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 and small business owners that are fearful of losing their business and all of that. We run the gamut. But what we all have in common is the fact that we are relational people and that we truly are in this boat together. I know it's already a cliche, but if I say to you, we are all in this, right? But it's true. It's so true. So I just want to encourage you, call someone. Make a point of on a Sunday, you got some more time, call three people. And then every day this week, call one person. Just reach out to them. Don't be the one to say, oh, nobody's calling me. Now just pick up the phone and call. FaceTime somebody. Send a text to somebody. Reach out to somebody. We do need each other because to experience the peace of God, we need to experience that relational peace that comes as well. Well, I'm going to close with this story. It was the long, cold winter of 1863. And the war between the states, the American Civil War, it raged mercilessly, and sons and fathers and brothers from Mississippi to Maine had not come home for Christmas, and many would never return. Poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow sat in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he was pondering the state of the world around him. Longfellow had been widowed for two years since his wife's dress tragically caught on fire, and the fire burned her beyond recovery. And then his son, Charles, who had gone off and enlisted in the military without the approval of his father, he was now seriously wounded, having been injured on December 1st by a Confederate bullet at the Battle of New Hope Church. And for Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, he sat nursing his son on the long road to recovery, and he could in the distance hear the church bells pealing forth Christmas tidings. And he struggled with the message of the angels proclaiming, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Because as he observed the world around him, a world of injustice and violence that seemed to mock the very truthfulness of this optimistic outlook, peace on earth, he took up his pen and wrote what we now know as the Christmas Carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It's not one that's that familiar or one that we sing all that much. But in a moment, I'm going to invite us just to listen to it. The words will be on the screen and to reflect on it. But let me share with you two lines that I think are are, are two stanzas that are incredibly powerful because this is what he wrote. And maybe it expresses a little bit of what we're feeling today. He says, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. May these words be an encouragement 
to our hearts and minds this morning. Let's listen to these now.